Welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell. And I'm delighted to say I've got Liz Crow here with me again to talk through some of those difficult topics that we face every day in emergency medicine. Hopefully you'll remember Liz from our previous podcast where we talked about grief. And today we're going to tackle another tricky topic. We're going to talk about how we break bad news in the emergency department. So Liz, how would you like to start chatting about this tricky topic? Firstly, I think it's really important that we never say we're going to deliver bad news or break bad news because I think both of those words for me have connotations that we're going to tell the individual something and then we're going to walk away. And I think if we have to share something that's really painful and difficult to hear, what the primary message should really be is we're going to keep having this conversation with you you're not going to be abandoned. You don't have to work this out for yourself. This is now a team effort. So that's a really important concept that I'd never thought about before. What you're saying is, is that to deliver something or to break it, if you like, you give it and walk away and that's the end of that. But really, that's not what we should be aiming for. We're aiming to develop a relationship where we can give ongoing support. That's right. I, th- I think, you know, the pizza man delivers something and when he drops the pizza off, he doesn't come back and say, how did you find that? How are you now going? Did that pizza work for you? And that's what delivery means to me. It's the same with breaking. I'm going to drop this off and then I'm going to depart. And if it was yourself and you were hearing really painful, difficult news, you know, especially for the first time, connection would be so important because you'd have questions that you'd want to ask. You'd want to have a relationship The studies show that people really want to feel like they were important on the day. And so even how we're thinking about it, the terms that we use, I think drive what that relationship will be. So let's reframe it. What should we call this if we're not going to be breaking bad news? I think that's difficult. I don't know if I know what is a better term to use. I think it's really about communicating difficult news because communication for me means that there's a connection, I'm engaged someone's listening, they're going to respond, and I'll know how to find them again. So already we've tackled some really fundamental aspects of how we're going to have this conversation. And in the emergency department or where you work on the paediatric intensive care unit, I guess often this isn't just, I'm terribly sorry you've broken your leg, but it's the ultimate in bad news. I'm very sorry your relative has died. And often these are unexpected deaths, but we're trying to give that news in the best way we can. Have you got a roadmap for how we can possibly start to even think about doing that in a way that helps everybody as best we can? I never like to have a roadmap because I think otherwise then people have it in their own mind. I've said something, tick. I'm on to the next thing, tick. And that's not about connection. I always think the primary place to start is actually with yourself. How do you feel when you have to go and communicate difficult news? What does it do to you internally? What do you know about yourself and the way that you respond under pressure? Because I work with many brilliant doctors and brilliant nurses who under pressure really go back to their medical training and they use medical terminology. I can almost see them ticking things off in their mind. And as soon as you start to do that, you lose sight of the person that's right in front of you. And that's an issue. If you come in from a space of really understanding yourself, I'm going to struggle. This child is the same age as my child or That older lady reminds me of my grandmother or I feel like a failure. I just need to get in and get out because I'm uncomfortable when people cry. If you know that about yourself, you'll be checking yourself at all times. So for me, I think when I'm 
talking about communication, the first thing is about self-awareness. What do I struggle with in terms of these difficult conversations? What am I not going to do today and what am I going to do today? How important is it to me that this family feel felt heard and connected? Because really, particularly if it's conversations around life or death, we can say anything, but all they hear is, is my loved one alive or is my loved one dead? Everything else, there's a great Simpsons cartoon episode where they're talking to the dog, Santa's little helper, and they're all confessing things to it. And all the dog can hear is blah, blah, blah. And I think that's probably what families hear a lot of the times when we're communicating something difficult. What we need to be really focusing on is connecting with them and giving them the bare facts because everything else is blah, blah, blah. We talked in our last podcast where we were focusing a bit on grief and how to deal with grief, about how to protect ourselves as healthcare professionals and for carers. What you're really saying is we need a connection, but an incredibly personal connection. Doesn't that put us at more risk from emotional harm ourselves when we're trying to do what is in essence our job? I don't think it does because I think it's always a challenge to have to come and say what we did the best skills that we had today, the best technology and knowledge today was unable to save your loved one or will be unable to save your loved one in the future or won't protect you from this horrendous diagnosis. But we can always walk away if we've made a strong connection knowing that on that day, that person felt heard, that person felt connected. And if you can find the meaning in that, if you can be very clear in your own mind that what you did that day was still significant, it'll be a protective factor. I am asking you to give of yourselves. I am asking that and I I know that that can be difficult. But I imagine and I know from my own experience is when you can walk away and think on the most horrendous, intimate, devastating day of that person's life, they felt held by us not physically held, but emotionally held. We kept them in a space where they knew they could keep asking questions, where they could come back, where we remained engaged and creative to ensure either that this person had the most respectful death that they could have or that this person, despite receiving horrendous news, started that whole journey with a really positive impact from our health facility. In emergency medicine, we occasionally fall back on, if you like, checklists. This is something we turn to in times of stress so that we have a structure that we can go to. I completely understand that this needs to be as natural an engagement as possible with the people that we're talking to. And we need to communicate as human beings to each other. But sometimes it's helpful to have a structure to work to. Is there something that you can suggest that we can try and use to help us make sure we do it in the best way possible? I guess I'm thinking of how we introduce ourselves, how much background we might give, what we do towards the end of the conversation, what we do when people become uncomfortable, when we need to think about how to communicate more. Can you give us some ideas on perhaps how to just put that into a framework? I can hear that you're desperate for a framework. So I think there are a number of key points that you can have in your mind that you can think about when you're away from the hospital so that it becomes familiar to you. I think it's really important in critical care medicine, whether you're a paramedic, it's ED or ICU, that a big part of simulation needs to now be around non-technical simulation. 
about how we actually practice these conversations so that people become familiar with it and more comfortable with it. And even if you're doing it with your peers, you will have to still be confronted with finding the words, looking at emotion, being on the spot. It is really worth considering putting non-technical simulation into your education. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is often in a critical care environment, things are happening on the fly and people are juggling a number of tasks at any given time. So if it is time to go and have a very difficult communication with someone, just take a few seconds and pause. Get your thoughts together Ask yourself, where are these relatives and what's happening? So if they're currently in the room, and I'm a big fan of advocating that relatives are in the room when resuscitation is going on because the literature strongly suggests that that's helpful to them if they feel comfortable to be there and they you can allocate a support person to them. If they're in the room, don't have the conversation over the person's body. If the patient is conscious and it's a difficult conversation, invite the family in and ask the patient if they're well enough to have the conversation. Always think, number one, myself. What am I doing? Am I frantic? Do I need to catch my own breath? Do I need to collect my thoughts? Long after you have forgotten this family, they're going to remember you. So we really want to take even a minute to ourselves to get our thoughts together. Take the time to set up a room, to find somewhere confidential, to find somewhere that feels safe. Take the time to set up the room so that you're not standing over people, everybody has a chair. These things just take a few minutes, not much at all, but they can have a valuable impact on families when they remember it for the rest of their lives. Always go in wearing the face that families need to start the conversation with the right context in mind. Often I see healthcare professionals enter a room with a big beaming smile on their face because I think what they're trying to do is connect with the person. They go in wearing a big smiley face and they introduce themselves because in their minds that's where they need to start. If you're going to communicate something very difficult, you need to go in with the game face that this is going to be a difficult conversation. You don't go in beaming and smiling and we're going to be friends. You go in with a very somber face so that as soon as they see your face, they know this is going to be hard. So you might say, I'm very sorry to meet you under these circumstances. My name is Dr. Ian Beardsall. Or I'm really sorry, can you please take a seat? This is going to be a really difficult conversation and then introduce yourself. We know that when families are receiving difficult news, the first thing you say and the last thing that you say will set the whole context of the conversation. So if you go in and say, hi, my name is Liz Crow. How's your day been? What have you been up to? Immediately, they put themselves in a context, you know, this doctor or this nurse or this social worker looks pretty happy, so things must be going to be okay. And so everything you say will be framed in that way. And that's not what we want. We want them to hear from the onset, this is really hard. So if you go in with a somber face and you start the conversation with, I'm very sorry, or this is going to be difficult, I wish I had better news, this is going to be hard, whatever, it frames things up. Then be very clear what it is you're going to communicate. So if the person has died, you need to say that in the first sentence, I'm terribly sorry, your loved one has died. 
I think one of the traps that I see is that people want to tell the relatives everything that they did so that the relatives know everything was done. So they go in and say, your loved one arrived and this is what their heart rate was doing and this is what their respiratory rate was doing and then they arrested and then we gave drugs and then we did CPR and then we tried this. and when we... Think of the Simpsons episode, blah, blah, blah. All they can hear is dead or alive. So you say that and then often it's really important to say things in chunks and pause. One thing that I find a bit challenging when I'm in a room and people are giving difficult news is as soon as the relatives start to cry, people grab a tissue box. And I think it's just because we're uncomfortable with grief and we want we can't do anything else, so we want to make sure they've got a tissue. But I often witness families experiencing that as, can you, can you get yourself together? So the second people cry, you don't have to throw the tissue box at them, hand them to the tissues, just give them a moment. Often they'll ask for something. If there's no tissues in the room, just say, take your time, I'm going to go and get some tissues. We want them to have the space to actually grieve. So if you say news that is difficult and people become very emotional, just pause. Don't talk over the top of their emotions. Give them some time and say to them, take your time. So what we've got so far is we need a special place to do this, which is quiet. We're going to go in and we're going to be almost delivering this news before we've walked through the door. So we have the right attitude in ourselves. And really, they get some clues from our nonverbal communication before we've said a word of what the type of news is that they're going to receive. We introduce ourselves. I'm a big fan of using my first name, but framing that with perhaps what my job is, just so people are really clear, because even these days, people get confused with who you are. And then delivering very early on that word, the D word, I'm very sorry they have died. One thing I sometimes do, I'd be interested to know if you think it's useful, is if there's been something happen in the community and perhaps the relative has seen some stuff happening or they were aware of the resuscitation effort going on, I'll sometimes ask them, what do you know already? Just so I get a feeling of where they are and what they're expecting from me. Does that seem a reasonable thing to do? I think asking people what is their current understanding of the situation is the perfect way to start if someone hasn't died. Coming in if you know they're aware that the person has been quite unwell or they've presented at the ED because the person is unwell and now there's a, a tumour or something that you've become aware of, it can be really useful. I think it's most useful when there's a chronic condition or when you know colleagues have spoken to them in the past. If the shift has been going on for someone's been in the ED for the last 16 hours or someone's been in ICU for the last four days and then you've come on, I think that that can be a useful position to start if the person hasn't died because you can see people become confused if the person's died and you come in and say what do you know so far people like oh I've got to be really clear because maybe I could save my loved one's life you're asking me because you're the doctor and you want to know what I know and then so then when you say yes well I'm sorry they've actually died people get really confused and are far more shocked so I think if they've died you come in and sit down and if they've observed an accident you can then go back to that point if that's what they're looking for. If they come in and they've died and really all they need to do is grieve and get with the, you know, go and be with the body, then you say, you might have questions down the track. If you'd like to come back and speak to us, we could arrange a time. Someone from our department could speak to you. So I think it's really valuable if you've got lots of time yourself and it's not a death, 
Yes, absolutely. Still go in with your game face. Equally, you know, if it's good news, you want to go in smiling. So people are like, oh my God, things are going to be okay. Unless it's in the context of additional information, I don't think it's helpful in the first instance around death to ask people what they already understand. Go in, let them know the person's died. Then they might say to you, what happened? That might be your cue to say, what do you actually understand? Because they might know nothing. They might just have had a call to say, your loved one's in ED and know nothing. Or they might have said, I arrived home from work and I found him on the floor and it looked like he'd taken a fall and he had a bump to his head. And then when the ambulance came, this came, and then you can fill in the gaps. So if we could, can we just perhaps go through a couple of hypothetical situations I'm sure many people listening to this who've worked in emergency medicine or other areas of critical care, these may ring true with them. And I know that I've certainly had things like this where I found it very difficult. And I'd really appreciate how you can best have these conversations. So, for example, we've just talked about the fact that often the relatives may know nothing about what's been going on. They may have just had a call from either the police or maybe from a friend saying, did you know your wife or husband has just been taken to the emergency department? You need to get there now. And perhaps that morning, their loved one was entirely well. And so they're thinking, oh, they've uh, slipped off a ladder and they've broken their ankle or they've perhaps bumped their head and all is well. And actually, it turns out it's a complete shock to them, the news you're about to give them. How can you possibly prepare them for that news? Going straight in there when they have absolutely no idea, I find very hard to do. Again, I think that's about our need to soften a blow. There's no way we can soften the blow. If the person that you love most in the world is dead, you are going to feel that like it's Mack truck running straight into your soul. Like there's no way to soften the blow. The best way to do it is to make the communication clear from the onset and then to connect and offer support. There's no one way to tell an individual that the most horrendous thing in their life has just happened. The main thing is you go in, you have an empathic face, a sad face, you say you're sorry, you introduce yourself, you let them know that they're died and then you don't run away. Then you stay. Then you do the hard yards. You're not finished. And that can be really hard in ED because sometimes there's a call, you know the unit's busy and you can justify in your own mind, look, I've done the best I can, I need to get out of here now. But to keep popping back in and seeing that family and being present and keeping the communication going, that's what's valuable. What I'm asking is, is a lot and also very simple. It's about remaining connected, witnessing people's pain and grief, but saying I'm not going anywhere. That's a very powerful thing in itself. And you're also asking people, I think, to be quite brave. But in the end, that will be the best thing. It is asking us in some ways to be more vulnerable because I'm asking you to stay connected. I'm very confident that you'll walk away saying, that was really painful, but I did a really good job. And when people know they've done the best that they possibly could and that they can make meaning of what's happened, they do better in terms of their own well-being. Is there anything you'd recommend If this situation involves children, perhaps maybe their mother or father's died suddenly, I guess it's going to be age appropriate depending on whether we're talking about toddlers or preschoolers or young kids or teenagers. Is there anything we should think about more when we're trying to tell children? Or do you sometimes look to speak to the parents first and ask them to talk to their children? Who should be doing that? Say, you know, 
God forbid a mother's been killed in a car accident, which happens unfortunately all the time, and a dad is there and he's got a range of children from 16 to 6 and they're sitting in the waiting room waiting to hear what's happened and the mother has died. I think it'd be really important to go out and say, this is really difficult news. Do you want to come in and sit down with us with your children in the first instance or do you want me to just speak with you? I always encourage the whole family to go in because there's no protecting kids from this. At some point they have to hear it. And I always say to families, this is going to be really difficult news. But for me, I think it's really important that right from this moment, your children know that you're going to do this as a family. You're going to be together as a family, that they're not going to be excluded from any information. But people might feel uncomfortable with that. And in the first instance, you want to speak to dad on his own and then help him communicate that news to his children, then that's fine. Look, nothing makes me go in the toilets and cry more than when you have to give terrible news to tiny children and then they cry. It's completely heartbreaking. They will survive this. They will be changed, different, hurt, but the literature does not necessarily say they will be broken. And so we want to give that message right from the very start that as a family, they can do this. They can endure it and grow and be together. Ask the father, ask the adult in the first instance, and I can tell you grandparents will always say the children can't hear this, the children need to be out. We need to be the ones who are educated about that to say, We can't hide this from them. Their mother's not coming home. And in actual fact, if children get to go in and see their mother dead, then they do better. We take children into every situation in paediatrics. So siblings come in and put moisturizer on their dead baby brother's body or sister's body. They come in and they do hand and footprints after their teenage brother has died. We bring them into everything. And every child always says, I thought it'd be worse than this. So they can do it. It's us. It's us that's afraid. So we've thought a little bit about the way in which we're going to try and communicate to families. We've talked about how to make that an ongoing conversation. We've got to some sort of closure area of this conversation with the family. Is there anything we should say at the end? Is there anything that we should offer that family? Is there a way in which we can leave the room to let them grieve as a group? When we're talking about difficult news here, we've been primarily talking about death, whereas difficult news can come in a whole range of packages. Everything from having to tell your colleague that they're not doing so well in terms of their exams, a whole range of things. So I always think if we're going to summarise, go in and say, compose yourself, think of your environment, think of the way you're going to start, do things in chunks, know what you want to say and then pause, give people time to reflect, to grieve to absorb the information. Shock is a really important part of allowing your brain to get used to an idea. Families will often try and make you say something different. I don't know if you've ever had that experience as a doctor where you'll say, I'm sorry, this is a catastrophic brain injury and your loved one cannot survive. And then they'll say, well, what about surgery? Well, what about And sometimes I see doctors because they can see that the families are getting desperate. They're trying to soften the blow and so they mix the message. You can't mix the message. If the person is going to die, if it's a catastrophic injury, if your colleague is going really appallingly badly and likely to fail their exam, you can't change the message because that's unfair and it's confusing and people will grab onto that. Keep your message really consistent 
the main things that you want to say, keep going back to saying them, but don't speak for the sake of it. Don't speak to go over the top of people's grief. Don't speak so that you can feel like you're finished and now you can leave the room. Give people time. But at the end, you need to summarize. You need to say what you've already said so that people are very clear. So you can finish things off by saying, I'm very sorry that your mother has died. Would you like to come in and see her? Another thing is is that people like to think, I've gone through everything now. Now I will tell people about the coroner. I'll tell people about what's going to happen. Whereas often if they've just learned that they've died, let them come in and be with the body and then usually the questions will come from the family. And if not, come back in 20 minutes' time and say, you might have some questions about what happens now because this was a sudden death. Unfortunately, we have to refer it to the coroner. Or wait until other relatives get there. It's often the brother-in-law or the sister-in-law or the aunt or someone who will come in who is emotional but not so overcome by their grief that can remember the important facts. Give someone your card. I often give people my email address just because it's easier than responding to a phone to say, if you have questions, if you'd like to email or you want to have a meeting with us down the track so that you can go over about what happened, they've got a, a contact. And people are like, oh, you know, I'm too busy. Families rarely actually do that, but it's a powerful statement to say, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. You were important. So, Liz, I think you've given some really important things to think about, not least the idea that this isn't a one-off occasion. This is a conversation that continues. This is a relationship that we're building up where we can support these people at the time that they need us the most. We've got a bit of a framework, but we've got to acknowledge that within all of that, there's human beings who are trying to communicate It was interesting thinking about that framework because actually it's similar to what we do in clinical medicine, just with a normal conversation. It's almost like what we do on a podcast. We introduce ourselves, we say what the conversation is going to be about, and then we summarise it at the end and we make sure people know where to turn for more information. And I think that's what we're doing when we're communicating this bad news. You've definitely given me food for thought for how I might approach this in the future. And I'm sure you've given our listeners some food for thought too. And I think there's definitely more conversations we'll want to be having about times when we're not just talking about patients dying, but when we're talking about communicating difficult news, but not necessarily involving death. Liz, it's been an honour and a pleasure as ever. And I can't wait to talk to you again on this and Emily's podcast. 